0: It's Robert Axelrod, professor of political science and public policy at the University of Michigan, where he has taught for over four decades. Receiving a PhD at Yale in political science, he is best known for his work and research concerning the evolution of cooperation and political behavior into the modern age, including topics like international and cybersecurity. He is an award-winning and extensively published scholar who has taught across the country, Consulting for organizations like the UN, the World Bank, and the U.S. Department of Defense. In 2012, he was awarded with the National Medal of Science by former U.S. President Barack Obama concerning his extensive work in the behavioral social sciences. In this interview, Axelrod sits down with Mia to talk about his work, the current political climate, and his hopes for the future political thinking and action.
1: Robert Axelrod, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. I know that a, a big focus of your writing and your study you, it spoke about, you know, the importance of uh, an interdisciplinary perspective, but if we could just even bring that back to like a, a more general audience, could you just tell us what is, you're a political scientist, what is political science as opposed to the, the other branches and the disciplines? Where, where are you coming from? What is your perspective?
2: Where I'm coming from is, first of all, an uh, undergraduate degree in mathematics. I've always been interested in mathematics um, and looking for an application, and I thought political science might be the most interesting for me. Uh, So political science deals with politics, of course, including especially government and the role of governance in society, and it deals uh, more generally with conflict and conflict process, conflict avoidance, uh, conflict resolution, uh, at all levels from uh, the local to the global.
1: That's that your background, and that's what drew you to it. And what do you feel the challenges are and your responsibilities as a political scientist?
2: Well, let me answer in terms of my motivations. When I was an undergraduate, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred in 1962. And I thought it was very um, odd that countries would risk hundreds of millions of deaths in order to determine where the missiles took off from, whether they took off from Cuba or or from uh, from Russia. And it didn't seem to me to matter. So I thought this was crazy. And there must be some interesting things going on to help understand it. And that got me uh, into the study of international relations and decision making. And so my long term motivation has been to reduce the risk of war or other dangerous consequences of politics. And so I feel my responsibility is to use my talents and uh, resources to help mitigate the problems of the world, uh, also to develop scientific understanding, which you, which may, on these topics, certainly be relevant to uh, policy, but it might just be for intellectual curiosity, and we also know that, in many cases, uh, science driven by curiosity eventually does have major applications. Uh, Einstein is, of course, a terrific example, and so is Darwin, for that matter. So I also feel I have a responsibility to, as an intellectual, to be honest, to be candid and uh, not hide my motivations and to uh, serve the uh, public interest broadly conceived.
1: Before a student would approach in you know, studying political sciences, perhaps a science, perhaps pursuing it uh, as a career or becoming or an analyst or before that level, I found, and a number of students are coming to us as well, saying that they felt that they didn't receive um, from middle school or high school. I mean, just going back to the very early stages when they should be getting a grounding in American, American and international politics they felt that they they hadn't learned it. It wasn't something that they were really exposed to very much beyond a very basic uh, um, education in American politics until they go to university. So in terms of education reform or some things that we might uh, introduce into the education system in order to help encourage more responsible, more educated and involved citizens, what do you feel? I think the most
2: critical thing is education for critical thinking, the ability to, say, listen to a political argument uh, or an argument of any sort, as on COVID, for example, or on climate change, and not necessarily understand the science behind that, but to understand how to evaluate the credibility of the speaker, how to evaluate the, the logic of the arguments, and to see whether... Um, uh, conspiracy theories behind this that has no grounding. And so I think what's especially important in uh, high school would be an education of critical thinking. Now that can happen in the context of many different subject areas, certainly, such as obviously, such as history uh, or science. Uh, but I think that it's uh, worth a attentiveness to this these problems. The critical thinking is also related to um, appreciation of a text. Can you draw inferences from a text? And what is the What is it trying to tell you that isn't obvious and how do you evaluate its uh, value? So that's what I think is more important than teaching politics, for example. Although uh, within the context of politics, I think uh, at least in the American context, the most plausible place where it would be done is in the context of history, American history, global history, ancient history, and to think uh, and to teach about, for example, how laws are made and the structure and meaning and details of the Constitution of the United States and what does civil rights and civil liberties mean. So I think at the high school level, it should be attentiveness to training and education to be a good citizen. And to be a good citizen, you want to uh, know not only your obligations but and your rights, uh, but also how to function effectively as a uh, as, a, as an active member of society and not just um, following whatever social media seems to be most congenial at the moment.
1: And, and speaking about, and I'm thinking now of your uh, work on um, game theory and I'm, you're talking about people um, knowing what their rights are, responsibilities. and I'm just thinking about some people's responses to the COVID crisis in terms of not wanting or refusing to wear masks as a right, you know. Um, I mean, what has been? I don't want this to be a discussion about COVID, which seems to eclipse everything. And then there's other there's other looming conflicts that we have to think about. But what has been your response to? Have you been surprised by people's reaction study in terms of game theory and different things.
2: Yes, I have. I have been surprised by the, the amount of pushback from uh, people who are not deferential to authoritative advice and guidance, say, from the Center for Disease Control. I've also been continually surprised by the irresponsibility and uh, damage caused by President Trump in in COVID, but also in other contexts, but it's especially clear in COVID. His advice and his analysis are are just completely um,
1: dangerous. Yes, it's, it's frightening, because if at any time we really needed good leadership, or even, I don't want to just say a baseline of sane leadership, um, it would be now. And so it's interesting because as sciences go, political science, the social science, you don't have this, you're not able to do these kind of clinical trials per se or the experimentation where you can really control things. You know, and and, and to reproduce, uh, are you are you you have done something. You, you know, when it's outside of the environments of you know real time, but um, it's it's hard to reproduce things. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Because the, when you try to have lessons for the future, it's it's not the same reproducible um, scenario. It's just, it's constantly changing.
2: Well, okay, first occasionally um, it is possible to do real experiments. An example would be you offer a certain kind of uh, assistance uh, to one set of villages and a different form to another set of villages that are chosen at random and you see what the response is. For example, you uh, help organize village councils to reach decisions in one set of villages. So sometimes you can actually conduct experiments Uh, under controlled conditions um, in the real world. But of course, in many contexts, you can't do that. You can't have a clone of uh, Congress, for example. What you can do, of course, is several things. One is you could do statistical analysis and be careful about the uh, difference between causation and correlation to uh, try to understand based on data from the past about what are the causal mechanisms going on here. For example, what kinds of things do voters respond to and what don't they respond to? Or how do individuals select which messages they'll attend to on social media and therefore what, how their politics develop and what's persuasive and what's not? So you, there are ways of systematically using data. And there's also the, uh, another approach which is uh, often used by economists, which is deductive, which is you say, if, if we assume certain things, I'd say about people or institutions, what are the consequences? and then compare those to what actually happens to see if you can get some new insights. And so that's one of the things I've done a lot of, which is try to make simple mathematical models that aren't necessarily um, accurate predictions, but allow you to see some fundamental things going on more clearly uh, by virtue of uh, representing them in a very um, simplified form.
1: And and you're also known, I mean, you touched on it a little bit, but for promoting, Interdisciplinary research and in its importance in um, the evolution of cooperation. Uh, could you ex- explain um, your work on that?
2: On interdisciplinary or on evolution of cooperation, or both?
1: Yes, both. <laughs> and how and how that enriches. Uh...
2: I'm best known for my work as a, on the evolution of cooperation. This is based largely on a very simple game called the prisoner's dilemma. And it's modeled on the uh, story about uh, two uh, uh, people arrested for a crime. And the district, the the, the prosecutor says to each one of them, if you confess and give evidence against the other one, I'll give you uh, a very light sentence. But if both of them stay quiet, uh, they'll be cooperating with each other. And there won't be enough evidence for proving a major crime, just minor stuff. And so each one of them has an incentive to double-cross the other one. But if they both do that, of course, then the prosecutor doesn't need, need them. Because they've got the evidence from both. And so it's a very simple situation. And if it only happens once, the best thing to do is to, uh, no matter what the other guy does, is to confess and get a lighter sentence. Uh, But if it keeps going, if if it's an reiterated relationship, like, for example, between two countries like U.S. and China, they're interacting not just once, but many times over years. Uh, and And so if the game is played over and over again, many other possibilities arise. And this is what I, this is a situation I studied and thinking of things like an arms race where if both countries might be better off getting more arms, but no matter what the other guy does. But if they both do that, then of course they're still tied and they've spent a lot of money ways they could have, if they were restrained, gotten the same level of security at a much lower cost. So arms race are a good example of this sort of dilemma. So what I did is, um, is think about what, what's, what's the best strategy? How, how would you play this game? Uh, if the other player was sophisticated and, and was thoughtful, uh, what's a good strategy for you to use? And there wasn't a clear answer to that in the literature, but so what I did is I invited um, scholars who had done research in game theory to say to send in to me entries to a tournament what what strategy would you use and written out as a computer algorithm? if you know the the experience with the other players so far, what would, choice would you make and what how do you compute that choice? and so I got a number of entries from many disciplines. Uh, so this is where it begins to be the you know, interdisciplinary aspect of it, that economists, sociologists, uh, biologists all uh, had re- thought about the prisoners dilemma in game theory, and so they were able to provide uh, entries to this challenge that related directly to each other, even if the biologists didn't know much economics and so on, they didn't need to. And then I ran the tournament to see what would be the most effective strategy, and the Quite surprising outcome. Well, let me put it this way. I expected that the best strategy be really complicated and sophisticated, just like the best strategy to play chess. You have to computer chess program, you don't expect the winner to be a very short program. It should be a very, you expect to be very complicated and involved and have many pieces to it. But in fact, in the Prisoner's Dilemma game, the, the simplest of all the rules submitted was the best one. And that was what I call tit for tat. It's a very simple rule. It says on the first move, you cooperate. And then you do whatever the other side did on the previous move. If the other side cooperated, you cooperate. If The other side defected on the previous move, you defect. So that's why it's called tit for tat. And it turns out that that does very, very well. And the reason it does so well is it tends to give the other side an incentive to cooperate. If uh, it cooperates, then you'll cooperate. If you cooperate, it does better. So another way to put it is that there's a trade-off between the short-term gains from defection and the longer-term gains from trying to develop mutual cooperation, then I analyzed that and I I decided to try it again, but with many more entrants. And I advertised in computer hobby magazines and more wrote to more academics and got um, 62 entries and ran each of those against all the others and amazingly, the tit-for-tat again won, even though people knew that it won the first time and were trying to do something better, it was still the best, uh, and again, still the simplest. And that led me to do some serious mathematical analysis on why that's true, and why it's such an effective strategy against a wide range of uh, strategies the other side is using. Um, and then also led me to think about many different applications of this, Uh, certainly to politics, as like the arms race, for example, and collective bargaining between union and management would be another example. But then I also thought that there might be interesting cases in biology where two animals might be caught in a situation like this and develop a cooperation based on reciprocity, because tit for tat is sort of the embodiment of reciprocity. Uh, I got in touch with a leading evolutionary biologist, William Hamilton, and the two of us wrote a paper about the evolution of cooperation in biology in biological systems. And then I published that and then I published a book that had that as a chapter and then analyzed the tournament and analyzed the mathematics about tit for tat and analyzed statistical analysis of why it did well. And then talked about other applications, not just biology and politics, society, personal relations. And because the game is so simple, people in many different disciplines were able to uh, apply it to their issues. So for example, in the entrance, As I said, I got entries from quite a number of disciplines, but also in terms of later applications, uh, people published uh, in many different fields based on developing the ideas of my work on the evolution of cooperation. So in this case, it was having a a simple tool and approach that was general enough that it could apply to many different uh, kinds of problems and therefore be of interest to many different disciplines.
1: And... Uh, it's wonderful when you can apply things to across disciplines, and I wonder why. I just I'm thinking about different political systems. Uh, in America, is a, a wonderful grounding for the system, and and yet there's I, I don't always see that cooperation. <laughs> maybe maybe it could uh, benefit from more tit for tat, or it seems like maybe the tit for tat is a little bit too um, begrudging. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too strong. It's a t- but. It seems like they're vast moves, uh, as I compare to maybe Switzerland or I don't know. Uh, you know what you feel about the evolution of the European Union?
2: Well, I don't feel informed enough to comment on that. But certainly, there's well. No, anyway, nah, nah, let me not get into that. I just don't feel confident.
1: All right, but I'm I'm curious. I mean, even if one isn't fully informed, and I'm, you know, you you are, I'm sure. 10 times more informed than I am because I am just an artist kind of interviewer. <laughs> I am more on this art side of the conversation, but, um, an artist. My father was
2: an artist. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, and it means you know. I'm curious about a lot of things that I emotional. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can also speak about that. You know, I would love to learn, but I would, before we pass on the thing, I mean, in terms of like, I remember the very beginning of the European Union, but I remember, you know, on hearing about second ideas, it's developing, um, and then it's as it was just really forming. Um, so we have a lot of hopes for it. But now, is I mean, what were your thoughts when you when you learned of its development?
2: Well, I thought it was a marvelous institutional process, especially at the earliest stage, focusing on preventing another world war based on Germany and and, uh, France and Britain being on opposite sides and having conflict among them and let's not do that again. And the idea would be to make their economy so interdependent that it wouldn't be feasible and also so that they would learn to trust and value each other's success. And it it gradually grew um, and became a quite amazing set of uh, institutions that did in fact pretty well guarantee that, that, that uh, Italy and France would not fight a war. For example, <laughs> Germany would not invade Belgium again and things like that. I mean, the things that for 75 years were a danger and now are not a danger. Uh, and so it was very effective. Now, but the institutional structure that developed had some inadequacies, uh, mostly because it was designed to be a government to government relationship and not a citizen to citizen relationship. And so there's a real democratic deficit as it's called, meaning that the, uh, most of the um, common legislation is done by bureaucrats and not by elected officials. And that I think undermines some of its effectiveness and, uh, and loyalty to the institution. But um, it did accomplish quite a lot. Now, one of the reasons it was able to do that was because of the fear of the Soviet Union. So after World War II, of course, the world was pretty much bipolar between the United States and its friends and Soviet Union and its empire. And that led to NATO, for example, as well as helping promoting, very much promoting the value of the common market in Western Europe that eventually expanded. So having an outside challenge certainly promotes cooperation internally.
1: And, and in terms of promoting um, more... And I don't know if it's possible under its current structure, but more citizen-to-citizen cooperation, as you spoke of. What are some ways we might reform the structure of the European Union to encourage that?
2: Well, give more authority and power to the um, elected legislature in the European Union as opposed to the commission, and that could be a gradual thing, and uh, because uh, the elections are local, it would... It would somewhat bypass us uh, using the, each of those governments as the only representative of their people. Another one, of course, is to uh, work out the financial issues that have so plagued uh, the common market, partly because of the the difference between the development levels and growth levels of northern versus southern Europe uh, that have been a major challenge to the union, and and part of the reason why Britain left the union and feeling that they were uh, subsidizing things they didn't want to subsidize and weren't getting value for it. But in addition, while the common market and the European Union especially has been very helpful in lessening the intensity of parochial nationalism among its members, there's still strong nationalism, but it's not quite as parochial in the sense of um, thinking that the Netherlands is the only country, it says the Netherlands only cares about another Netherlands. Now they care about their neighbors as more, as, as more than they used to. Uh, and so it, it's helped provide another focus of uh, value and attention and governance. And, but in that process, it's only been partially effective, of course. There is a very strong notion of what a European governance should include. For example, very powerful notions of civil rights and civil liberties. And so to join the union, you have to, a country has to abide by a whole list of things that promote civil rights and civil liberties as part of the very um, identity of the union. And that's been very helpful. Uh, But I think that there's real challenges in the union now about disciplining members like Hungary who are not living up to those standards anymore.
1: And I'm very interested in this um, concept of citizen to citizen cooperation beyond, um, I mean, even in a country like America, where you're, you're not having that issue so much, you have more citizen to citizen cooperation than, I'd say, we're talking about the legislature and uh, the European Union. But still, there is this sense that if you vote, because it's not guaranteed that everyone will vote, even though they're eligible, then it's sort of their job done. So it is citizen to citizen in one respect, but then it's a much smaller circle of people who take to heart um, their civic responsibilities and become engaged beyond the election cycle.
2: Well, I think a a related problem, though, is polarization, uh, which has been in the last four years very uh, powerful in America. It's, It's always been there, of course. Uh, but the bitterness and exclusivity, I might call it the left and the right, is much more intense and partially uh, en- enabled by social media, where people, instead of listening to a national TV channel for their news as they did in the 60s, are now choosing which media and which messages and which blogs to pay attention to. And they tend to choose things that largely agree with their perspective, and then they become even more entrenched in that perspective as they get more support for it. And so I think uh, polarization has been a very great problem in America and to, and to Europe too. It undermines the community's uh, values and spirit and willingness to cooperate at the national level or perhaps the international level. And, uh, and certainly the current president has magnified that polarization.
1: Yes, and and other issues, uh, and I don't see a solution for them now. Perhaps you have a solution for. It. Uh, one thing that doesn't make sense to me is the electoral college. It doesn't. It doesn't seem uh, representative, <laughs> for, uh, in in a true sense.
2: The electoral college um, is a very bad institution for the present day. Uh, so it came about at two for two reasons. And In 1789, when they were writing a constitution, uh, it was difficult for people to get together. They didn't have telegraphs, and it was still a confederation of state governments that had recently, only recently, come together. So they set up the system where the states would elect people that would then come and vote for what they hoped would be the best person. They all, each of these electors, would look for the best candidate to be president. And that's why it was not a popular vote. It was too hard to count the votes that way. And uh, so they aggregated by states. And so that was sensible at the time. But the, and the other thing is then they made it very hard to change the constitution. They wanted to make sure that the constitution principles uh, would be almost permanent. I mean, it is possible to change things, but very, very difficult to change things. And that's why the electoral college survives. So, and and whenever somebody tries to uh, amend it, uh, there's some interest that would prefer to keep it that way even if it's not fair. So it's an anachronism is I guess the right way to put it. And uh, I think nobody today would defend it as what you would have if you started from scratch. So if some other newly independent country set copied Americans judicial system, that would be fine. But if they copied the electoral college, we would all think that it's just terribly undemocratic and a very stupid way to do it. But we're stuck with it. But there are ways of, uh, hopefully, ways of uh, repairing it. So here's a very creative suggestion that was made, really related to game theory. Uh, The idea would be that um, uh, each state, if they wished, would pass a law saying their electors must vote, not for the candidate that won in their state, but for the candidate who won nationally. But that, would only happen if enough states agreed to it, enough states that had a majority of the Electoral College among them. So Texas would say, we're only gonna do this, we're not gonna, we're only gonna vote against, possibly vote against Texas voters if if enough other states agreed to vote for the national candidate so that the national candidate would win. And once you have a majority of the Electoral College states agreeing to this contract, you would then have a popular vote. The Electoral College would not have to be changed in constitutional terms, but its operation would be adapted by the states. It's a very clever idea. It takes a certain amount of trust and confidence that states that pass that would actually implement it. For example, if Texas voters voted for one party, the national vote was for the other, it would require some trust that Texas electors would actually follow the Texas law and vote against the Texas voters. But that it's certainly feasible. So that's a creative idea about how to get around the uh, the lack of a popular election.
1: It's a it, yes, it is a very interesting idea. Uh, the only thing is that it, the electoral college is in some people's interest, so it doesn't it benefits people who are who would not get the popular vote. So I don't know how to balance that really, um, and it's. Uh, Traditionally, uh, or in recent times, uh, the Republican Party is benefiting from not winning the popular vote. So I, I don't know how to make them vote against. It's, very, it's You know, it's very strange because a Republican Party will generalize. Has, is very good at convincing voters to vote against their self-interest. You know, if there's a the number of people who are voting for a Republican Party that it doesn't benefit them. But I don't see that they would vote. I'm not sure I, they would uh, like to, um, Though that's a very interesting and it makes perfect sense to me, that reform. I, I think it would be, Um, And another interesting aspect, and I don't understand, I I actually don't know the figures uh, as compared to other countries, but the period of time that um, American candidates for president run is very long, and also the, the campaigns are very expensive with all the ad space and everything. I don't know how that compares to other countries, but... I don't know if you have a solution for reforming that or perhaps making it within the kind of uh, more reasonable boundaries.
2: Um, I believe it's America probably spends uh, more money per capita for the election campaigns than any other country. I'm not sure of that, but I'm pretty sure Uh, and probably by a lot. There's another anachronism here, which is uh, one of the founding principles of the United States was free speech, which is a terrific idea. Uh, and, but recently, uh, the Supreme Court has interpreted that as meaning that corporations are entitled to those rights, and therefore nobody can prevent a corporation from speaking on its own behalf or, or, or constrain that. Uh, I think that was a very bad uh, interpretation, very unfortunate, because what it meant was that they're allowed to contribute as much money as they want. I mean, to simplify it. And therefore, corporations can have a disproportionate uh, influence on the vote. Now, what can change, I think, is the uh, when Congress is controlled by a different party, it, it, it might rethink what the campaign finance laws should be, what limits on people's contributions and what limits on on uh, transparency of it. when do you have to announce who's giving you money and how do you restrict the uh, gathering of money. Uh, and so I think that it's quite possible by law to uh, make the campaign a lot more fair and uh, more between the competitors. And that would go a long way. Now, that it's a partisan issue because the Democrats have a bigger stake in the current situation than the Republicans in, in limiting. Uh, the, bat, the importance of wealth in campaigning. And so, but if the Democrats got both houses of, of Congress, that can change by law. And I think it should. Things like uh, provide some public financing for elections as well.
1: Yes, and, uh, or, or even just like, you know, free publicity on, you know, some of the networks. So there's, you know, it, and so it's not so costly to, to run those ads.
2: Right, although that's, broadcast networks are less important now in campaigning than they used to be because of social media.
0: I'm Gabriela Garcia-Stolfi, a student at American University majoring in communications and minoring in international relations. Here at The Creative Process, I'm the social justice and community initiatives podcaster. At the current state of global affairs, it's important to understand one's own role in the fight against harm and hate. Axelrod explains in the first half of this interview, his responsibility is to use his talents and resources to help mitigate the problems in the world. It is vital that we as participants in society use our own skills to do the same. Education has a strong position in this mission because the more we understand about history, power dynamics, and cultural nuances, the more effectively we can contribute to real systematic change. In my time studying international relations at American University, I often found myself frustrated that most of the studies had to do with theory, the personification of countries rather than the specific communities, ethnicities, or people going through war, genocide, or any other form of harm. While this frustration is a very real one, Axelrod points to the balance between applying theoretical understanding and the understanding that events, states, actors may pan out in ways apart from theory. The emphasis on education for critical thinking is something that I feel is lacking in the current school system, especially when it comes to the vast polarization in the United States. Value is often placed on statistical standards in most of high school and college, so much so that it is rare for students to retain what they learned a year after they learned said material. The consequences of holding statistical standards with the most importance causes students to repeat learning for a certain assessment or deadline because it can guarantee the short-term success the institution calls for. Gradually, it becomes more difficult for students to implement critical thinking in aspects beyond a school setting as well, thus making it harder to understand people, and world events with a critical lens. I often see this kind of disconnect specifically in my peer group, as many pride themselves on being helpful to a cause, when in reality, their actions, based on their social position, may very well be more harmful if anything. By shifting the spotlight to critical thinking, a student will be able to understand an argument or text without much context or knowledge of its science, as Axelrod mentions. This approach also applies to many facets of our lives and our interactions with other people and happenings around the world. Such a nuanced way of thinking deserves such spotlight as the structural and institutional change we seek are that much closer with said thinking.
1: Yes, that's true with all this micro-targeting as well. And so, I mean, I don't mean to ask such broad questions, but I think that for us outsiders who are not political scientists, we're interested in your perspective in terms of reforming or the evolution of um, institutions, like you mentioned NATO or, let's say, um, the United Nations. You're speaking about, you appreciate you know, their establishment, and how could they better live up to their, um, their missions?
2: I think an important uh, process is uh, development of global consciousness among citizens, the, the idea that we're all in this together. And a big step was taken, I think, when the astronaut took a photograph of the Earth, and we all saw this little marble that we're all living on, and we're all on the same planet. Uh, We could imagine it for the first time from a perspective of another person seeing the globe as a whole, and not just our neighborhood or our country. It's clear that uh, some important issues, a good example is climate change, are global that no one country can control the changes in climate and the weather and the, and the disruption that will cause globally. And we also, COVID, of course, is, is another example of that no one country can, uh, each country can try to do what it can for its citizens, but nevertheless, the epidemic is global. And so if some other country is doing a bad job, it's likely to cause your country trouble. Uh, and so I think people are realizing that's another global issue, uh, in the Cold War, the fear of nuclear conflict was another one, although that was mostly seen through the eyes, not of a global problem, but of a bipolar, you know, us versus them problem. But COVID and uh, climate change are certainly, exa- and, uh, and to some extent, economic downturns are, are all global. And uh, to the extent that people recognize that, that they can't just pursue their own national interests. Um, without regard to what others are doing. And again, our president has set a terrible example by saying he doesn't care about allies and alliances and treaties. Uh, he wants just to make America self-sufficient and isolated, which works for North Korea, but <laughs> it's not going to work for the United States or anybody else for that matter. So uh, I think that uh, a major change is going to be needed and it's beginning to happen to see us all as citizens of the same Society, a global society, and that what happens elsewhere in climate change or COVID or finances uh, and many other things will affect us too. And so we need to work together on that, and not just take the view of what's good for our own countries individually.
1: Um, yes, and speaking of you know us all living on this planet we call home, you know the doomsday clock, which is used to be counted in minutes to midnight, and now they're going to seconds. It's very hard to think about. I think I understand the impulse from people just not to want to pay attention to that. And so I felt, I mean, I know it's hard. When I think about seconds to midnight, I can't understand. But I feel like, you know, one thing we have, as I try to apply my little artist brain to things, is that we're all carrying around these devices. We all, you know, we make our purchases through them because it's hard to, for people to conceptualize like that. You know, they don't. We don't see the whole picture of the planet. We live in this little thing, so our we have myopia. And I felt like, well, you know, everything we purchase, if you know, if you're opting in, if you're paying by card or whatever, that that's track if you can see what you're you know oh my my travel is this my thing is that and you can see what is its consumption for global warming you know and you can see i'm adding to this and these are our seconds and this is the waterline of that and if we are made aware of it not to inspire mass hysteria but we see that's what i'm adding you know i think that there's so many apps for everything uh, apps to make you look prettier apps to whatever if you could do the math on your purchases and have make some kind of estimate this is my contribution to that and that could be like i could go on a carbon diet just like institutions just like corporations but if it came as you say citizen to citizen then there's a kind of movement I'm not sure that the, an app could be completely accurate, but if people were able to see that and get these reminders of our seconds to midnight, even though I know that's it's not a metaphor, it's, it's like real, you know, if you go beyond certain things in you know, nuclear warfare or global warming and this kind of nuclear catastrophe um, is real. But if it was put in our, as you say, if the figures were fed to us, just like we are constantly looking at our social media to, to see who's liking our photos, to see what our um, what our stats are, I guess.
2: A couple of reactions. The first one is you use the phrase "my little artist brain," and I really object to that. Uh, I mean, I see if you're saying that as an artist, you haven't been educated in international institutions and war and peace and climate physics. Well, that's, yes, that's right. But I think artists have a lot to offer in helping us see the world in new ways, whether they're uh, artists as novelists, artists as performers, artists as painters, and so on. And So their brains might work in a different way or focus on different things and not technology, for example, but they could be that the artists artists are the best able to help us see the world in a new way. A uh, Second, um, your idea about how if we only gave people information about their contributions to the problem, like how much carbon they're producing, uh, that would help. Well, I think it would might help a little bit, but I think they still need it. People still need incentives. Uh, there has been research showing that if, if you tell how people's performance compares to their neighbors, there's people on the same street, they, you know, how the, how maybe you use uh, more energy than they do, but not not globally, but sort of very, very locally, it helps. Even in experiments in hotels, you know, where it's, hotels sometimes have a sign saying, if you uh, leave your towel on the floor, we'll give you a new towel, If but ha- please hang it up if you don't need a new towel, so we'll save us you know, that energy. And they find that if they just put the sign up, that helps a little bit. But if they say, uh, other people in, uh, in your same room configuration on the 17 floors of this hotel, they've done this, uh, 80% of the people in your kind of room have done this. Then that really makes it much more likely that people will do it. Uh, And so comparative stuff is very, comparative figures, especially locally comparative. But another approach is to provide economic incentives. And I think a carbon tax is a very good example. Instead of just telling people how much carbon they're using, but just add it to the price so that you'll tend to wash your clothes at nighttime when energy is cheaper and things like that, so they won't have to build as many coal-powered stations. And so I think that incentive structures that reflect the social cost, let's say, of burning coal, will be useful for people to make informed decisions on their own without necessarily having to feel that they're being altruistic.
1: Yes, or yes, if I mean, one thing I think about is just through our consuming and over consuming, and it's not just packaging, but you know, then these things have to be transported great distances. So, when you're over consuming um, that way, or obviously international travel and the kind of transport we use every day, I'm I wonder if there can be really a carbon tax on everything that people are aware of it, unless maybe it's more. It's like more clear, like when they're spending. I, I I think that I would maybe be pressurized if I saw like, um, let's say, accumulation of, and I think I don't use a lot of plastic per se, but there's so much packaging. And if I saw that that's all, that's the accumulation of my purchases and then I can see what I can do. To reduce that i can see what i can do to reduce the transport and the and i can see what, what things i could cut out but i think that yes you're right people are very competitive so of course seeing that others are being responsible would incentivize as well but it would be great for people who could get like they feel they can get a tax break by being more responsible too but i but you're right to say i mean i don't mean to say that uh, my little artist brain but it's just that i don't know how to make those huge um, institutional changes. Uh, and so yeah. I, I, would re- I would depend on, on some legislation or some uh, software developer or someone to do that. But I think that, that people can get you know, addicted to um, giving and doing good. You know, that's the thing that they can get addicted to it, just like consulting their phones. And if they feel they're making progress, as you say, it's like a game. And they feel that they're winning. I, I'm certainly, if I was constantly receiving a reminder about our, our seconds to midnight, that it might inspire me to behave more responsibly. I think we've dis- we've discussed many of your, uh, you know, your body of work. I do want to. You said you're father was an artist. And so I'd love to hear about that. And then also, so what was it for you to then pursue political science? Who would have been an uh, inspiration for you since uh, it wasn't in your family? Or, Or maybe there was another member of your family or an influential teacher?
2: Well, I was the first to go to college, so there weren't any academics in my family. But uh, I was definitely inspired by my father's art because he's a painter. And what he did was to, when he, like, for example, when he'd do a a landscape painting, he didn't try to make a photograph out of it. He didn't try to represent every detail. He instead included the parts and the form that seemed to be the essentials to him and the part that he wanted you to appreciate and understand whether it's the beauty of a tree or whatever. When I do mathematical modeling, I also I try to provide my understanding of what's going on in a simple form to focus on the parts I think are essential. And so in some ways, the building of simple mathematical model is comparable to doing a painting.
1: Oh, definitely. There's a lot of um, math. It's kind of an instinctive math. It's strange because um, I, as a painter, I, um, I mean, it's not complex math at all. But you know, it's also interesting how different, when different parts of your brain develop and others uh, you neglect or you give over that space to others, because I remember being very good at math, very good, I don't know, I was in the Math Olympics and I remember I, I enjoyed it. But then as the arts took over, more of my life. I can't say that I've developed it all in, in, my math skills have gone down, but there's a lot of, all these things that we ascribe to instinct, a lot of them are also complex calculations. I shouldn't say complex, but they're, they're taking place so quickly.
2: Well, it's certainly right that we do not have direct access to many of our uh, mental capabilities. For example, we can recognize in a photograph there are three horses there in that picture. Uh, That's not so easy for a computer to do. They're getting better at it, but or another way is to say this face is smiling. Again, computers are beginning to be able to do that sort of thing, but it's the sort of things, well, for example, riding a bike. You can learn how to ride a bicycle, but it's very hard to explain it in a textbook how to ride a bicycle. And if somebody read the textbook and, and ride a bicycle, they just obviously need to practice and learn the muscle coordination and the balance. And that's because uh, we don't have access explicitly to our mental capabilities. So we can't just write it down and read it as a text on how to ride a bicycle. We have to actually do it. And there's a lot of other things, including science, where a lot of, if you're going to be any kind of scientist, you obviously have a lot of uh, book learning, but you also have to have a lot of apprenticeship. of of, of working alongside other scientists and seeing how they behave and how they, what they value and how they make judgments. And those are important processes.
1: And speaking as a novice as well, you know, when you're working on mathematical models and, and yet they're describing or they're meant to predict, you know, human behavior, I, I don't know if you could describe the way you're, introducing the variability of human behavior or, you know, we're not logical, really. I, I don't know what percentage of the time we are logical, but I, I, I observe people <laughs> and I see that they're often not logical, even when they feel they're logical. So how do, how do you introduce that in your mathematical models and your equations?
2: Well, one of the things I do is study what happens if people, instead of calculating what's best for them, they observe what others are doing and they copy what successful people are doing. And that's another that's an alternative to kind of rationality of uh, ends means and figuring out the long term consequences and how others will react to you and that sort of uh, explicit rationale calculation but But imitation um, has some real values too, and you don't have to understand exactly what makes it work. But if you see other people successfully doing something, then maybe that's a clue of how you ought to do it. Now, of course, it could be misleading in various ways, but it's still an example of an alternative. Another example of an alternative is an evolutionary process by which things that uh, are able to um, succeed in the short run by, say, gathering enough food to allow reproduction will be what's observed in the future. Darwin's idea. But you can also think of evolution uh, applying at different levels, such as um, companies that produce different kinds of automobiles. The ones that the consumers will buy are more likely to survive and make more automobiles. And so you have an evolutionary process uh, there. And again, it's not necessarily, it could be trial and error. It's not necessarily a rational calculation of what kind of design is going to be most effective. You might try to do that, but it's also uh, testing the market as an alternative to rationally guessing and there's certain fields like uh, say production in movies uh or music which really very very hard to guess
1: it's it's interesting i mean we could go into a whole discussion of that i guess there are algorithms uh, presently composing music and 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 it's being produced and played too it does it doesn't quite satisfy me but Um, There's an interesting divide, I think, with current upcoming, uh, the the generation now, the young generation now, where the acceptance of the synthetic or the non-biological, you know, something created by an algorithm, uh, music, that their ear is less sensitive to it, like they've grown up in this kind of uh, synthetic reality, um, or where things were fed to them by algorithms so they they're less resistant whereas maybe you or i would feel that's not human i i can still see the three horses <laughs> i can the, and they don't move like horses now
2: that's a very interesting point that uh, our generation are are uh much more exposed to synthetic uh, images for example and sounds and stories and so on in advertising um and therefore they might be I don't know. I mean, you're, you're suggesting they might be less sensitive to quality, let's say in art or music.
1: It's hard to say because it's subjective, but, um, but I think it's less, I think that's more because if you, you've seen these kind of faces, which are, um, computer manufactured and for me, and then, and they're like the average of many faces or they're actually manuf- they're just pixels. They're not a real person's face. Now, For me, what I would have, I guess, this idea of what is beauty. And I've looked at those images, and they're hard to to look at, and for me, hard to accept as beauty, because I'm drawn to irregularity. And I think, I don't mean that it's quality even necessarily, but it's like an artificial, they've been presented with a lot of artificial presentations, uh, you know, as they grow up. So it's more normal for them.
2: about... uh... So artificial characters, are that if if it begins to look like a human, uh, people are, are, um, hate it. If it's sort of quasi-human and pretending to be human, whereas if it's really quite different like a cartoon, that's, that doesn't cause any cognitive problems. And of course, if it fools you entirely, it doesn't cause any cognitive problems. It's just sort of, it's interesting when it gets close, uh, people find that very um, unsettling. And probably, people probably get better. I'm sure the computer scientists will get better at this. They will, for example, uh, be sure to introduce the amount of uh, asymmetry in the face that real people have and not assume that the left side and the right side are exactly the same. And, and so I think they can introduce irregularities, but whether they could produce music, they can they certainly produce music that is in the style of let's say Mozart. That would fool me as somebody who is not sophisticated in music, but I don't, but they're very far from being able to fool somebody who is, uh, appreciates Mozart um, deeply. Um, and the same with storytelling and the same, I think with other creative processes like uh, paint, you know, they can paint, but they can't paint well. I think it's very hard to um, develop a product that will give us give humans the emotional response that they get from other humans, especially humans who are adept at that media, such as music composition or painting or poetry.
1: Yeah, it's hard to it's hard to fool the experts, but we've seen that where forgeries have convinced experts, and I think then in you know in the political realm, in terms of fake accounts and bots, even people pretending to be Americans, in influencing uh, elections and false news articles that might be written by people, but some of them, I think I think a, a lot of uh, journalism, there's some journalism that is not written by people. And I find that frightening. Um, I do wonder also what, I know, because I said an hour, but I like to make sure we, we cover these things, which are very interesting and important. You know, what do you feel about the future of journalism? Because you have seen, this is how, how we keep people accountable. You've seen this evolution over
0: your long career.
2: Well, I'm very uh, disappointed that, uh, that, that the print media has had difficulty surviving financially. And so one example is that the number of foreign correspondents is dramatically lower. Very few newspapers now can have foreign correspondents. And so we're very much dependent on just a few sources for what's going on, let's say in Afghanistan or anywhere else. And likewise, the number of journalists who are able to make a living doing serious journalism, I'm sure has declined. However, there is a, an alternative that's developing that looks in worse, but maybe it has a future, which is sort of self-generated webso- webinars. I mean, your, your own, this, this very, um, processed uh, podcast that you've started uh, is an example of a kind of a journalism, a kind of interviews and, and uh, giving out news to the public that's a very different from trying to publish a newspaper based on advertising. I think that the idea of webinars and podcasts and, and people with great followings on Facebook or Twitter who comment on the news or, or, or produce poetry, this provides a new uh, modality And and it has some serious, it's some major advantages. For example, it's very cheap for the consumer. You don't have to buy an annual subscription to a magazine to uh, subscribe to something that's produced electronically and delivered that way. And it's very much more democratic. You don't have to be uh, hired by a large corporation to be an employee of, of Reuters, for example or BBC or any of the others. And so that's, it's more democratic and it's, 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 it's more accessible to the public. There's much more choice. Now, of course, there's also a serious problem of credibility and, and standards. So in a major newspaper or television channel would hire journalists who had certain standards. If they didn't, they'd be fired and replaced. And they were expected, for example, to check their sources and not make up quotes and things like that. And of course, with social media, somebody can uh, put out a theory and make up quotes and, and cite experts that don't exist and all sorts of things. So we've lost the standards that uh, organizations like TV stations or large newspapers were able to impose. And um, I hope that, that that those will become, there'll be new institutions emerging that will do that, for example, that people will recommend to each other who to pay attention to. And so if somebody has uh, been uncovered as making up quotes, then people will stop paying attention to that person. And the standards will then be emerged by consumer choice and shared information. And there's a little bit of this in fact checking. There are several sources for fact checking that have gained credibility. And I hope and and expect that there'll be more of those things that sort of crowdsourcing of reliable sources of news.
1: Yes. um, uh, Saul uh, Pullmutter at the UC Berkeley has a public editor project. I don't know the whole project, the whole progress of it, but it's with the same aim to give you know, credibility ratings to items in the news. I mean, I, I feel I don't, apply, I mean, I'm just interviewing people. I'm just talking. It's pretty much, you can verify they said it, you know, and there's no deep fakes here. But um, for people who are doing serious um, news reporting, I think that, yeah, this, of course, that is that is a big risk. So I, I, lo- I really love those initiatives that, you know, encourage um, a kind of, Uh, ratings system if it's done but public editor it's you know people are contributing the the public is contributing to rating these news sources yeah i think it's it has its there is a question of quality but what i do like it's it is positive and i notice and a lot of um students are as well, you know, they say that students, because we're dealing a lot, as you know, with universities, and they say that their attention spans are shorter and all of this. But actually, so many have said to me, they are interested in these long form podcasts, and they're really, you know, addicted to them, they listen to them. So they really like to receive, and this is more information than you would be able to contain in a, a newspaper article. So originally with this Uh, podcasts and these interviews that I just give them away. We have journals that participate. I was initially had uh, one of the major newspapers. They wanted to include interviews, but what they want is so short. And because what they can afford is so short and their space is so limited, that even though it's 1,500 words, I really felt if I do an interview that's an hour long or an hour and a half, a body of work, they didn't want that. They didn't have no space for that. So I thought, really what you want is the press release of their latest work. That's, you know, you really don't even need me. <laughs> I don't know why. So I really felt like it would be a question of throwing away, you know, this kind of you, these deeper insights that you get with the long form format. And in,
2: in your case, you've presented things in two forms, mm-hmm. the long form of the total interview mm-hmm. and then the highlights. And so you've kind of reestablish one of the uh, things that uh, journalism often does. I mean, like head- headlines and, f- and first paragraphs as the short form uh, or journals, um, you know, that are, are, are academic stuff that have abstracts, which is the short form, or reports that have executive summaries. And so I think this idea of structuring the content so that you can um, uh, approach it at different levels of intensity, and often start at the most brief, and then uh, see which ones seem interesting to you. In fact, from the time of high school on, I've made a habit of looking at lots of uh, journals, table of contents, and then when I see something that strikes me as interesting and curious about I read the abstract, and if that looks interesting, I would typically copy the article and then read it and mark it up. In my case, I would do this for many, you know, like 30, maybe I got in the habit after a while of doing this like about twice a year, going to the library or now online and doing it for, say, 50 journals. And you could do that in a week. And uh, I'm I'm an unusually broad, have unusually broad interests, of course. But I think it is certainly uh, the media are, are learning to adapt to the consumer's ability, willingness, and ability to to approach many things and then get dig into deeper ones that seem interesting and promising. And uh, your your own structure is one example of that. But I think it means that the long form will only be accessible by those few people who are interested in that particular thing, or that the short form led them to have an interest in it. There were some statements in there that seemed, gee, that's interesting, I want to learn more about that.
1: Well, I think that one, and I'm glad I'm, I read that you appreciate that element and one um, aspect of our project, and then you'll see that a student will anchor this podcast and we invite their creative response. We share it with a number of students and then one is selected and it could, it could be from your discipline. It could be from another discipline, it could be an artist, a musician, or, you know, that they are listening to find something that they can relate to their own process and we post uh, their creative works on the side or in the projection elements of the traveling exhibition. So for me, the interview is the source material, You're like that da- data, I don't want to say your data, but the end goal is to inspire them in their creative process. Because I think that that's important. And I, I do think about, I know, <laughs> I, I do think about in terms of uh, what is our social responsibility? So I, I just have this last question. Um, as artists, as political scientists, the knowledge is important, but what do we do with that knowledge? How do we analyze it, but then how do we try to, as in your profession, inspire improvements to our institution? So I do wanna ask you, this is something I do ask, we've been thinking a lot and asking students too, as we think about the kind of world, we're leaving the next generation. I've been asking them if they had a wish for the future. Um, There's so many systems, uh, political, educational, you know, with the climate warming, so many things, but how do you feel we we might improve some of our current systems? And I I suppose, yes, what was your wish for the future in terms of passing on a better world to the next generation?
2: I wish people would uh... Have a deeper appreciation of how we're all in the same boat, or the same planet together, and that uh, interests of uh, and perspectives of people far away are valuable and legitimate, and need should be taken into account, and it just as they would be people in your own town, and in other words, a, a diminution of parochialism and a, a broader sense of cosmopolitanism. As I said earlier, I think uh, we're learning the hard way by experiencing an, a global epidemic and experiencing global financial problems and, uh, and gradually learning that the climate change is, is for real uh, and it's a global problem. And so we're learning the hard way that we do what we are in this together. And I hope that that feeling and appreciation and consciousness will be deeper in the next generation than our current generation. And I think that if, as that happens, a lot of other problems become much more manageable.
1: Well, I want to thank you, uh, Robert Axelrod, for all your contributions to helping us uh, understand political systems, in human behavior, um, appreciate the importance of interdisciplinary research and how, uh, and how all these disciplines can cooperate and help bring about better outcomes for us all. And, and just really for helping, helping us look behind the curtain at the ideas and norms that help uh, shape countries and institutions.
2: Well, thank you for this, organizing this process. It's so and- valuable.
1: Thank you, and thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Gabriela Garcia-Stolfi. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.